Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Hey, everybody, you know the response. Christ is risen. We're going to do it one more time, especially for the campuses and the people online. I don't care if you're sitting by yourself in your living room. Let's shout it together. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, we're so thrilled you're all here in the room. We want to thank you for joining us online, people across the nation, around our city, around the world. And then, of course, our campuses, Neverville, North End, Bronx Park. Why don't us bunch in the room give them a big shout? Can we do that? All right, so let's get down to business. So Easter, when it comes to Easter, it's an important day. And I want to tell you something to begin this message, and it's this. There are two non-negotiable theological truths in Christianity, and they are the virgin birth and the resurrection. Let me tell you why they're non-negotiable. The virgin birth is about the incarnation. It's about Emmanuel, God with us. The resurrection is God still with us. And that's why it's so important. And today my message is entitled, my Easter message called, The History of Rock and Roll. And I know if some of you think, oh, I love rock and roll, can't wait to talk about it. Well, if that's where you think I'm going, you're wrong. I'm not going to be talking about the Rolling Stones, not going to be talking about the Beatles, not going to be talking about Elvis, even though people called him the king of rock and roll. Even Elvis knew he wasn't. You know what he said? This true quote from Elvis. He said this. He said, I am not the king. Jesus Christ is the king. I'm just an entertainer. He knew his place in the world, which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you look at this, you know, Elvis, his biography was written by a man named Neil Matthew. Jesus' biography was written by St. Matthew. Elvis, remember he had those lamb chop sideburns? Well, Jesus was the lamb of God. Elvis had a white jumpsuit. Jesus had a remnant as white as the snow. Elvis said, don't be cruel. Jesus said, love your enemies. Elvis was all shook up. Jesus shook, shook heaven and earth. We know that Elvis staged a comeback in 1968. Lasted a few months. Jesus staged a comeback in AD 29 that lasted 2,000 years and is still going on today because he has risen from the dead. He's alive forevermore. And that's the story of rock and roll. I could quit right there, right now, and I would be done. I think I've said the message, but I'm not going to. I'm going to carry on because I think we have a lot more to say. So, history of rock and roll. We're going to talk a lot about rocks, a little bit about roll. It's fascinating. If you ever get to Israel, one of the things you discover is it's all about rocks. There's rocks everywhere. We know Jesus was buried in a rock and behind a rock. What we don't know, or many people don't know, is he actually was born in a rock. You go, say what? Well, it's true. I mean, when we look at the manger, everybody thinks of that as the manger, right? Little wooden manger. His father, the carpenter, built this. Guess what? That's not what a manger looks like. You go to Israel and you find out that the mangers, which are feeding troughs, are made out of rock. Jesus in that rock? Most of you can't imagine that. You know, I'm thinking about this. You know, when you go there, there's so little wood anywhere. You wonder why Joseph was a carpenter. It was a good thing Jesus was a carpenter because he had a lot of time to pursue ministry. If he was a stonemason, he might have been too busy. Who knows? It's a funny thing. Everything is rock. You walk on rock. Everything's built out of rocks. I mean, look at this picture here. The rocks just went forever. They used them forever. They even used the rocks to kill people. They came in very handy. And everywhere you see and everywhere you go, 
you see these rocks. And you hear Jesus talking about the rocks. I mean, we know that he was the rock of ages. We know that he was the stone the builders rejected. We know that he was the chief building cornerstone, right? And remember what he said? He said, look, if you people won't praise me, what's going to happen? The rocks will cry out and do it. So everywhere you go, there's this reference to rocks. So Jesus takes his disciples, and they go into the temple. The first time they go in there, I get the impression from reading this story that his disciples, some of them, have never seen the temple before. Now, we know Jesus had seen it. He'd been there when he was 12, so he was familiar with it. But some of these guys from Galilee, maybe they hadn't seen it, and they're staring at Herod's temple, going up to the sky with rocks the size of the pyramids of Giza, and they say, look at the size of of these rocks. And Jesus says, surely I tell you, not one of these stones or rocks will be upon another. What was he referring to? He was referring to the destruction of the temple that the Romans brought down in 70 AD. And it's an amazing thing when you're there. If you ever go to Israel, you got to go to the, the temple grounds. Here's a picture. You see, see those rocks behind us there? Those are the actual rocks from the temple that got torn down in 70 AD. They excavated them. There they were at the bottom of the wall. And when you see them, I mean, look at the response Kathy's having there. She's having like a holy moment. Now I'm laughing my head off because I'm imagining myself in Fred, Fred Flintstone's quarry, I guess. Everybody has a different experience when you're there. <laughs> you're, you're thinking less of me, aren't you? That's just terrible. But anyway, you, you get the point here. And then Jesus says this. So he, they're talking about these stones. They're talking about this incredible temple made out of rock. And then Jesus says this. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And then, of course, those who heard that, those who were his critics, go, what's he talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. He's not going to raise it up again in three days. And then in a parenthetical thought, it says he was referring to his resurrection. And you see, that's what this story of rock and roll is all about. It's about the rock rolling out of the way so that Jesus could rise from the dead and change all of history. So Jesus is moving about Jerusalem and, and you know, confounding people. And finally, they, they're kind of trying to figure it out. And they're going, is this a guy? Is this a dude? Should we listen to him? Should we believe him? So they asked him for a sign. And Jesus said to him, a perverse and wicked generation asked for a sign. No sign shall be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So when you hear that, what's he talking about? He's talking about being dead for three days. He's talking about coming back from the dead after the third day. He said, this is the only sign I am giving you. He says, if I rise from the dead, then you will know everything I said was true. That was the one thing. He laid it all in line with that one thing. And he refers to Jonah, and most people really don't get the Jonah reference, because they always imagine Pinocchio. Do you remember Pinocchio? He was in the whale, sitting there, floating around, talking to the other creatures in, in, in the whale, alive for those days. And we always imagine Jonah sort of floating around in the fish, waiting for it to end. You know, I'm a fisherman. <laughs> I've caught a lot of fish. I've seen a lot of stuff inside fish, <laughs> like, you know, mice and ducklings and frogs. They all have one thing in common. You know what it is? <laughs> they're, they're dead. They're always dead. They, you can't live inside a fish. And most theologians would agree on this, that Jonah was dead in the fish for three days. 
You don't imagine for a minute. People always say, how do you live in there for three days? He didn't. He was dead. And then when he got vomited up on the earth, he was resurrected. That's the point Jesus is making here. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was talking about this incredible thing. He was talking about the resurrection where he was going to rise up and come back to life. That's what this is all about. The whole story of this scripture is all towards this accumulation of this one moment where Jesus rises from the dead. You see, Christianity begins where religion ends, with the resurrection. And when Jesus did that, all of history changed. Reminds me of this story of this, this man. He's taking his family to the Holy Land, this great visit. Uh, brings along his mother-in-law, which was great. I went and took my mom, did not take my mother-in-law. I have my limits. And so anyway, he gets there. He's got his mother-in-law. Poor old gal dies while they're in the Holy Land. So the coroner says, you have two choices. You can bury her here. It'll cost you $1,500 to bury her in the Holy Land. Or you can take her back to Canada with you if you want, but it's going to cost you $15,000, $20,000. He says, no, we'll be taking her home. And, and, and the coroner says, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just bury her right here in the Holy Land? He says, well, the last story I read about, about a guy they buried right here, three days later, he came back to life. That's not a chance I'm willing to take. <laughs> Mother-in-law joke, you gotta love him. All right, now that we've had our fun, let's get down to business. We're in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to pick up this this important Easter story about the tomb. Here it is. We're going to begin reading in verse 59. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And on the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of your own? Go, make your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. So we know that Jesus was buried in the tomb And it was a tomb hewn out of the rock. There was a large stone in front of it. Now they're worried. I mean, when Jesus was talking about rebuilding the temple in three days, oh, they don't know what he's talking about. All of a sudden, they remembered what he was talking about. Didn't he say he was going to rise again on the third day? They got it. And they go, whoa, this is pretty bad news. If he happens, he's not going to pull it off. They don't believe that. But he says if the disciples come and take his body then the deception will be worse than anything. That'll be our worst nightmare. That'll just validate everything he said. We've got to make sure his body stays in that tomb for past three days. So they put their guard in place. They sealed the stone. They did everything they were necessary. And of course, you all know the end of the story, right? He comes out of the grave. He resurrects from the dead. And then, of course, they have to deal with this problem. So what do they do? Do you remember? We're not going to talk about it today, but if you read further, what he did, or what they did, was they paid the guards money to tell the story that the disciples came at night while the guards slept and stole the body. Now, that's an important thing to remember for our discussion here. 
Because what I want to do is I want to look at this story that is really kind of interesting and key to this whole discussion of rock and roll. So in 1930, there was a British journalist by the name of Frank Morrison. And he was an avowed atheist, and he decided when he actually retired from journalism, which he did, he was going to write a book debunking the claims of Christianity. And he was going to prove once and for all that Christianity was nothing more than one big giant fraud. Now, here's what he knew, because he was a smart guy, that what he needed to go after was the resurrection. Because if he could disprove the resurrection, then all the rest of the claims would fall down with it. See, nobody actually disbelieved that Jesus was a real person. People knew that. I mean, he was as real as Muhammad or, or Gandhi or Elvis. I mean, he was a real person. People knew that. But the big difference between Jesus and everybody else was Jesus claims to have risen from the dead. And if he could disprove that then he could go a long way to this new career of his, you know, espousing his atheism. So he starts researching, reading the story, reading the writings, doing the archaeology on it, digging into it, big deep dive in this thing. And he asks actually dozens of questions. He's written, the book is out, and there's dozens of questions that he asked. And I'm not going to go through them all, but there's three really key important ones that I want to talk to you about. I'm going to throw them up on the screen. The first question was this. In the history of rock and roll. How many disciples does it take to roll away a rock? You know, never mind the light bulbs, to change a light bulb. How many disciples to move a rock? And this is an important question. I'll tell you why. Because these rocks were not little. These rocks were six feet tall. We're going to see them in a few moments, a picture of them. Six feet tall, about, uh, about this thick. And they weighed thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. And the, the point is this. One disciple, two disciples, three disciples could not have rolled that stone away. It would have taken a whole group of men. It would have taken, you know, eight or ten of them to move this stone. It would have been an incredible endeavor. I don't know how many of you have ever moved a piece of granite countertop. We did one for my son-in-law and my daughter, and it was just the island. And it took six of us to lift this thing. It weighed a thousand pounds. It was only this thick. So what is a stone in front of a tomb? What does that weigh? Thousands and thousands of pounds. And so here's the question, where were the disciples? Do we know where the disciples were? Well, <laughs> they're kind of a piece of work, actually, the disciples. We don't see them at the trial. We don't see them at the crucifixion. We don't see them at the tomb. Where were they? The scripture says they were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. So do we really think these guys are coming in there and rolling that rock away? Not sure. You make up your own mind. Second question is this. How do you roll a rock away without waking up the guards? Here's the point. Nobody can sleep during rock and roll, right? Everybody knows that. And I just want you to imagine this picture. These stones were actually meant to roll. Don't misunderstand this. It wasn't a permanent seal. I have pictures I want to show you of this. So they're actually discs. They're these roundish discs. They're six feet high. And they are, if you look closely, you can see there's this, this channel or this groove, and they actually roll in them. Now, they're not light, obviously. They're meant to be, you know, semi-permanent. You can move them. But I'm just wondering if you can imagine the sound that that would have made. If these guards, let's say they were asleep, and these guys started moving that stone, you've got 8, 10, 12 guys all pushing this stone, grunting. Ugh! Guys can't do anything without grunting. You know that, right, women? And they're grunting, Ugh! Ugh! and they're pushing the stone out of the way, and the stone is... And these guys are sound asleep. I don't know. It's not making sense to me. And, you know, there's an interesting part of this, an interesting connection, because this whole thing was foreshadowed. You'll remember it's the raising... Of Lazarus. You remember this story? So Mary and Martha, 
their brother is sick. They send a message to Jesus, said, come at once. Our brother is sick unto death. What does Jesus do? Nothing. He waits four days. He arrives four days after the funeral. They're mad as hops at him. They said, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so Jesus, he's all calm about it. They cruise up to the the tomb. Imagine the picture I just showed you. Uh, You know, a tomb and a big disc in front of it, thousands of pounds. And Jesus says to his disciples, what did he say? Roll away the stone. Well, why didn't he roll the stone away himself? He's not rolling that stone away by himself. He's one man. You needed all those guys. So imagine they all go and they're rolling away this stone. And of course, there's a reason why he waited four days. And I'll tell you what it is. It's very important to our story. The Jewish culture, they believe that the human spirit actually hung around the dead body for three days before it departed. Just in case something changes. You know, a good moment happens. And so the human spirit's hanging around for three days. And then even though they buried on the very first day, after three days that they now knew that he was good and dead. And so what Jesus was doing, he comes on the fourth day to ensure that everybody knows that Lazarus is good and dead, not just mostly dead. You know what I'm talking about? Look who knows so much, eh? It just so happens your friend is only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. With mostly dead, he's slightly alive. All dead, well, there's only one thing to do. Go through his clothes, look for loose change. In case you're not following me, that's the Princess Bride. Miracle Max, you got that, didn't you? You people should be cheering right now. But the serious part that I don't want you to miss is this, that he waited until he was good and dead, raised him from the dead. Why? To foreshadow the fact that when Jesus died and was gone for three days, he was good and dead. He wasn't just mostly dead. And he rises from the dead, changing everything. So the second question is, how do you move this stone without waking the guards? And the last question, simple question, is why were the guards asleep in the first place? Do we really believe the guards were asleep? If this was this important, that they needed to guard it and seal it, these guys fell asleep, and this is what we know, that they paid the guards to say that they fell asleep, and the disciples stole the body while they were asleep. Do you think for a moment that Roman centurions would be paid to fall asleep while they're guarding something? They would have been executed. And that's what Frank Morrison discovered. And he began to look at this story of the disciples stealing the body and blew holes in it. And all of a sudden, he became convinced, an avowed atheist, that in fact, the resurrection was true. And when he published his book, you ready for this? The title of his book was, Who Moved the Stone? He became a Christian and he spent the rest of his life defending the claims of the gospel. See, that's the history of rock and roll. That's what he should have called that book, shouldn't he have? But he didn't. And let me tell you how important this is. You see, the the Jews, or the disciples rather, they actually weren't arrested for preaching the gospel. They were actually arrested for preaching the resurrection. It was the resurrection that was the whole key. 
Everything was predicated on that one thing and nobody wanted them to say that. Nobody wanted that message going out and they tried to do everything to stop these people. The Romans could care less. They weren't even thinking about this. And you remember the Sadducees were the big, the big you know, protagonists or antagonists in this because the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? <laughs> I've always liked that one. And you know, so it changes everything. That's what I'm saying. The resurrection changes everything. Christianity begins where religion ends with the resurrection. You know how it goes. Roses are reddish, violets are bluish. If it weren't for Easter, we'd all be Jewish, right? <laughs> it's not even close to being true, but I never get sick of saying that. All right, so we're going to pick up this story and just carry on from that same point. We're now in Matthew chapter 28, and this is what it says. And after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary... How would you like to go through life with your name, the other Mary? But anyway, that's her deal. Came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. (laughs) Mystery salt. Who moved the stone? Says right here, the angel did it. (laughs) This is a bit anticlimactic to me, isn't it? You thought there was some big mystery coming? The angel came, moved the stone. No problem for an angel. Very, very strong and smart and good looking. Verse 3. His countenance, this is the angel, was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. It didn't say they were asleep. For one thing, there was an earthquake going on. You're not sleeping through that. And it says, they were dreadfully afraid and came like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. And he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Told you. It sums the whole story up. Everything that, that Frank Morrison tried to dig in and discover was all here. It's all answered. The thing that I find kind of really interesting in this was the first person and persons that discovered the resurrection were only the women. Did you catch that? And there's a reason for that. Jesus wanted the message to spread quickly. So let the women know first. <laughs> Well, was that sexist on some level? I don't think so. <laughs> Why are you guys elbowing people? What's going on here? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to kind of dig into this a little further and look at what the resurrection is all about. And I'm going to give you three things. There's much more. And, of course, they're all I have to start with R because we're doing rock and roll and we're doing resurrection. So here we go. The three R's of the resurrection are redemption, regeneration, and reconciliation. So let's talk about this first one, Redemption. The word redemption, uh, we actually sort of know what that means because if you have coupons, we use it in our, our, in our culture, don't we? If you have a coupon for a free car wash, it says redeem this coupon for a free car wash. And what that means is to buy back. They kind of buy it back from you, that coupon. And so we know what that means to redeem. But in Jesus' day, that word redeem had a much deeper level, much deeper meaning. Because what it meant was if you were, let's say, a slave and someone redeemed you, they actually purchased you, bought you back, redeemed you, and gave you your freedom. That was called a redemption. 
And I want you to think about this because it's exactly what Jesus did. When he went to the cross, he purchased our redemption. He brought us back from slavery. See, we were all bound by Adam and Eve's folly. We had their sin nature. We were bound and slaves to sin, and we were under the power of Satan. But because of the resurrection and because of the crucifixion, what Jesus did is he gives us redemption and he buys us back. In fact, the picture is found on the cross in Jesus' last moments on earth. And you all remember it. We talked about it on Good Friday. Is that Jesus hung on the cross and just moments before he died, he said these words. It is finished. And he breathed his last. But in the Greek, that's not three words. It is finished. It's one word. And it's the word tedleste. And tedleste, are you ready for this? This is the meaning of it. It means paid in full. It means to pay the redemption. It is like you would put on a bill of sale, paid in full. And when Jesus hung on the cross, and when Jesus said, it is finished, he said, paid in full. I have purchased your redemption with my blood and with my life. You see, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He purchased our freedom from the slavery of sin With his own blood. That is such an exciting picture. So that's the first thing that's happening here. I want to illustrate it with an interesting story. I think you'll find it interesting. In the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, there was one of the world's most famous preachers, even by today's standard. And his name was Charles Spurgeon. And uh, here's a picture of him. Uh, And he pastored his church in downtown London for 38 years. Every Sunday, he preached to 5,000 people without a microphone. It's the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's still there today. You can go to it. I visited it. And he would stand there and he'd thunder from his pulpit and preach to these people. When he died after 38 years in the pulpit, 100,000 people came to his funeral. It rivaled a, a royal or a monarchy funeral in the streets of London. He was such a beloved man. And the reason people loved him was he didn't just preach the word of God, which he did, but he had this profound sense to be able to illustrate it and to make it real and to make it relevant to people's lives. Very contemporary in that respect, considering it was almost 150 years ago. And so I'm going to tell you one sermon he preached, and it was on an Easter Sunday morning. And he showed up on Easter, and he had a birdcage, and he sat it on the pulpit. And the birdcage was empty and the door was open and he preached a message very much like what I'm preaching right now about the redemption and about how Jesus bought our freedom. And nobody knew what the birdcage was. It just sat there empty, this entire message. And then at the end of the message, he said, you're probably wondering what I'm doing with this birdcage. Well, let me tell you the story. Two years ago, or two days ago, I was walking in the park. And as I was walking in the park, I found this little boy that was playing with this sparrow. He had captured this sparrow. And I said, young lad, what are you going to do with that sparrow? He says, I'm going to play with it for a little bit, and then I'm going to kill it. You just got to love creepy little kids, right? He says, and then I'm going to kill it. And so Spurgeon says, I'll buy that, par- that, that, that sparrow from you. And they started negotiating, and the kid charged him two pounds. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of money, two pounds. But in the 19th century, two pounds was like $150, $200. This kid was a good negotiator. He was a, like a criminal in, in training is what he was. So he pays him the two pounds for the sparrow. And guess what he did with it? He let it go. 
So anyway, when he gets to the birdcage and he's talking about this, he's talking about this illustration of redemption, he tells the story of paying the kid two quid for a sparrow. Everybody gasped because that was such an extraordinary amount of money for a wild sparrow that was worthless. And they couldn't believe that he spent that much money. That would be like me telling you that I just purchased one of those geese that walk around in our parking lot for $1,000. You wouldn't believe it. You know I hate geeses to pieces. You know I'd just as soon run them over with my car. That didn't come out of my mouth, did it? No, I love them. I'd pay $1,000 easily for one. (laughs) I'm not winning this one. So anyway, he's giving them this illustration, this, this extraordinary price that they paid. And then, or he paid for the sparrow, and they all gasped. Because what he was talking about was the extraordinary price that Christ had paid for our redemption. His own blood, his own life. He hung on that cross, and by doing so, everything changed. You know, when we hear those stories about paying an extraordinary sum for something, we always gasp, don't we? I heard one the other day. There was this, this, this son, and he got a dog from his parents. He couldn't train the thing. It was peeing all over the floor. He couldn't house train it. Couldn't get it to sit. Couldn't get it to do anything. Finally, the father, exasperated, said, you're going to have to get rid of that dog. Why don't you sell it? So anyway, the next morning, the kid's out in the street. He's got the dog tied up to a leash. He's got a sign that says, dog, fair condition, not housebroken, $3. His dad, who's a salesman, comes out and says, son, you're not going to sell the dog like that. You've got to upsell it a bit. Give it a decent price and, you know, you know, massage it a little bit. That's how you do it in sales. So the next day, the son tries it again. This time he's got it. It says, es- excellent, awesome dog. Best you've ever seen, $5,000. <laughs> and his dad sees the sign and goes, well, that's ambitious, son. Well, good for you. We'll see how it goes. At the end of the day, the, the dad comes back from work. The sign is gone. The dog is gone. He said, what happened to the dog? He said, well, I sold it. He said, you didn't get $5,000 for that dog, did you? He said, well, sort of. I traded it for two $2,500 cats. <laughs> I bet you didn't see that coming. So the, the first word here, an important word, is this word redemption. The next R is the word regeneration. Regeneration literally means spiritual rebirth. Or where that word regeneration is like regenesis, to be reborn, to be... And here's the, the whole concept about regeneration that's so important for us as Christians. See, in the Old Testament, what the Old Testament tried to do was to change people from the outside in. You all know that. There was all these rules and regulations, these laws you had to keep. And this, even the scripture admits that people couldn't do it. Because of the weakness of the flesh, they could not keep these rules and regulations. They could not obey God because you cannot change somebody from the outside in. And what Jesus comes does on the cross is he flips the whole thing around and he changes people from the inside out. That's what the spiritual rebirth is all about. And so he died on the cross for our sin, but he rose again on the third day to give us a newness of life. He changed us from the inside out. And that's why there's all kinds of people, and you know them, and maybe you've been one of them, that they become Christians and they just can't get on with it. They know they've been forgiven from the past, but their future is a mess. They can't get on with it because they don't recognize the fact that when Christ rose from the dead, he comes and dwells in you. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you, regenerates you, and gives you the power to change 
from the inside out. And it's the only way it works. I mean, think of Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he was like a criminal, right? He was a bad dude, killing people and persecuting the church. But was he a lawkeeper? He tried. I mean, he was a Jew. He tried to keep the law. He said he was blameless in the law. He was still a terrible person. Why? Because it doesn't work from the outside in. And then he came to Christ, and everything changed. And he went from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. He went from the chief of sinners to the chief of the apostles. How did that happen? Through the process of regeneration. Now I want to tell you a truly remarkable story. About uh, a number of years ago, the year was 1994, Kathy and I did a trip to Argentina. Buenos Aires, Argentina. And the reason we were there was there was revival going on throughout the land. And we were there to find out what was going on, find out what God was doing there, see what we could bring back to Canada. And while we were there, one of our hosts wanted to take us to a church service in a prison. And the prison was called Los Almos Prison. It was about an hour out of Buenos Aires. And they said, you've got to come to this prison with us. We're going in. They're doing a, the inmates are doing a service. We want you to come and see this service. So we thought, well, all right. You know, I mean, I don't know what a South American prison is going to look like. Turns out it was the most notorious prison in South America. It was a maximum security prison with 3,000 inmates. So we drive there. We're not knowing what to expect. We get there. And here's the the sign outside. So we see that sign. And uh, we get to these iron gates. Look at this building behind there. We looked at that. I remember Kathy said to me, We're not going in there, are we? (laughs) I said, I'm pretty sure that's where we're going. And I'll never forget when those gates closed behind us with a huge clank behind us. And we all looked behind us and realized these gates had closed behind us. And I've never really seen anything like it. If you're imagining it looking something like, you know, Peter Nygaard's cell right now where his cable TV and internet, I don't think that's what it looks like. Uh, it looks more like this. Dreadful, horrible place with burned out windows and broken glass and uh, just an absolute disaster. Twelve people in a cell, a hole in the corner for their toilet, and there's 3,000 criminals, murderers, convicts in this place. So then they escort us through the courtyard, and there's these, it was just like a a movie. There's all these inmates up in their cells with bars on them, going like this with tin cups, just like in the movies. I was framed, you hear? I was framed. And they're going like this, and they're jeering because Kathy's coming in to this prison. There was two other women, and she's clutching onto me like this, like I'm going to help her. I'll be the first to run. And she's clutching onto me, and she's saying, where are the guards? I said, I don't know. I haven't seen any yet. And then we approached this building. Here's a picture of the building. And this is the chapel. And it was a huge Catholic chapel, Roman Catholic country, Argentina. And so they had chapels on, in the penitentiaries for the inmates. And so we walked towards this. I don't have pictures of the inside. We weren't allowed to take pictures. But we walked towards this chapel and we went in. And there it was completely bare. It was huge. It was probably half the size of this room, held about a thousand people, concrete floors, concrete walls, uh, Virgin Mary and Jesus tucked over in the corner. I'm not sure what they were doing over there. And then there was a little stage set up, and there were some people, about a dozen people, tuning instruments and getting ready. There was no chairs. And so because they were hosting us, they put out some wooden planks on five-gallon pails. They had a couple of you know, planks there, and the 18 of us, 17, 18 of us, we went and we sat down in the front row, and we're sitting there thinking, what are we doing here? In fact, I think that might have been Kathy's question once again. What are we doing here again, and where are the guards? 
So we don't know what to expect. The band is warming up. And all of a sudden, the back doors of this chapel open up. And 900 inmates flood into this room and completely surround us, behind us. Just a semicircle of 900 inmates in a, in a South American maximum security prison. They're murderers and extortionists and burglars and sex offenders and rapists. And they're surrounding us. By this time, Kathy has cut the circulation off in my arm. She's gripping it. And she once again says, where are the guards? We still had not seen a single guard. So then we didn't know what to expect. These men all come in. The pastor gets up on the, on the uh, platform. I'll never forget. He had, he, I knew he was a pastor because he was wearing a suit jacket, blue jacket, just like this. He stood up. He smiled. Greeted the people, had no teeth, and then he said, In il nombre, in his name. And that crowd of 900 men in a thunderous response said, Glory adios, glory adios. And all 900 of them bowed down with their faces on the concrete and worshiped God. And we began the most incredible church service I've ever been in in my entire life in a maximum security prison in South America. I never thought I would see anything like this. Now, let me just really quickly give you the backstory of this. What had happened, it really was this horrible, terrible place. They had 300 guards, but the guards couldn't control the prisoner. The prison, the prisoners had taken it over. The warden had lost control. There was all murders and rapes and stuff going on. And a pastor ended up going to jail there. It happens sometimes. And he ends up going to jail there. And he meets a Christian guard. And the Christian guard has an idea. He says, why don't we go to the, the warden and see if he'll let you preach every Sunday morning over the intercom. So they went to the warden. The warden said, what do we have to lose? Let's them do it. So he starts preaching for an hour every Sunday morning over the intercom. That's what you call a captive audience, <laughs> right? And they can't go anywhere. They can't turn it off. They're all listening to this preaching. After a few weeks, they hold their very first service and 50 people come, 50 inmates. And it just keeps on going. To make a long story short, it went from 50 to 100, and 100 to 200, 300, 500, 600. By the time we got there, the church was 900 people strong. And those 900 men had transformed that prison. They were required to fast 24 hours every single week to be a part of that church. And they changed the culture. In fact, by the time we got there, the reason there was no guards is they reduced the guards from 300 to 30. There was 30 guards running this whole prison now because the church had taken over the prison. And the return rate of the people from that church, the return rate to be rearrested and ended back in that prison, it used to be 50%, but of the church members, only 1% ever got rearrested and ended back there. I want you to think about what a challenge it is to, to pastor a church like that because your congregants keep on getting released. See, we don't let you get released. You're not allowed to leave. We, we, we make you come back week after week. I mean, I suppose we could kick you out, but we want you to come. And, and it's interesting. I want you to think about that because a third of them leave every year. They get released. And so they're constantly building. The, at one point, that church got up to 1,500 people. So the last thing I want to share with you is as we were leaving, one of the inmates came and handed me this. And I've got a bunch of stuff that I've collected, artifacts from all over the world different places. I have a shelf at home where I put them all on, but this is probably my most dear piece that I have. It's a light bulb that one of the inmates gave me with a ship built inside, and I, I trust the camera can pick that up. And they have nothing. They have nothing. 
and only what they pick out of the garbage can. And they have picked out this light bulb and he opened it up and he built this ship in it and he gave it to me. And I'll tell you why it's so treasured, not just for where it comes from, but what it symbolizes. Because ostensibly it's impossible to build a ship in a light bulb. I know there's tricks and obviously it was done. But I thought you can't build a ship in a light bulb, but you shouldn't be able to build a church in a maximum security prison either. But they managed to do it and that's the God I serve. Because that's what this is all about. That's what the resurrection is all about. Bringing this amazing thing called regeneration. So we have redemption. We have regeneration. Last and final thing, just for a moment in this, is this thing we call reconciliation. What I'm really talking about is relationship. See, Christianity is really about relationship. When you look at the world religions, you know what the world religions are about? Religion. You know what the difference is with Christianity? Christianity is about a relationship, a living relationship with a living God, a God who came and dwelt among us, a God with us, a God who is still with us because of the resurrection. And what he does is his whole desire, the whole plan of redemption was all about bringing us back into that personal relationship with him that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And that's what it's all about. It's always been all about that. It's always been about reconciling our relationship with the living God. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's why it is so powerful. Christianity begins where the religion ends, with the resurrection. See, Muhammad is dead, and Krishna is dead, and Confucius is dead, and uh, Krishna is dead, Elvis is dead, but Jesus is alive forevermore because he has risen from the dead. He has redeemed us from our sins. He has regenerated us and changed us from the inside out and he now calls us friends. That is the story of of Easter and of course the history of rock and roll. So I'm going to take one more minute with those watching online and if you've never made this decision for yourself you've heard the story. You've heard what Jesus did. He died on the cross for your sin. He rose again on the third day. And the easy part is yours. All you have to do is accept it. And if you're there without this relationship with Christ, what better time than Easter morning to make that decision? And the easy part is yours. All you have to do is call in the name of the Lord and it will be done. And if you don't know, if you were to die tonight or tomorrow or next week or next year, if you're going to heaven, I'm talking to you. And what better time than right now to make that decision? And so there's a little button on your screen, a little hand, raise your hand. By clicking that button, it's a point of contact. All you're saying by doing that is, yes, I will make that decision right now. And now that you've done that, I want to lead you in a prayer. And those in the room are going to pray with me. It's a prayer of salvation, inviting people or inviting Christ into people's lives or specifically into your life. And I want you to say this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I've been a sinner a slave of Satan. But it changes today because you died on the cross for my sin, rose again on the third day, and forever live to me, my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I'm a Christian in relationship with God and on my way to heaven because Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. God bless you. Happy Easter, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. 
To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.